Our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 51. That's found on page 1,543 in your pew Bibles. Um, this, uh, today's, as, as Rachel has already said, this is one of the last in the sermon series, I Was Just Wondering, in which we address questions that have come from our youth and today's question is, how do we understand the end times? And I've chosen this passage because this is Jesus, uh, and it's in the middle of a long sermon, which is all about the end times. It's all concerning what is coming at the end of time. And that sermon really starts at the beginning of chapter 24, like at verse 3, and it goes all the way through the ends of chapter 25. It's one consistent sermon of Jesus. I can't read the whole thing, but I'm reading a bit in the middle and you'll hear how Jesus addresses this topic. Let's start at verse 36. But about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving up in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other will be left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour where you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It'll be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But the, suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place for the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, uh, young people, you asked this question today, how do I understand the end times? Let me say that uh, you can't answer this question in 20 minutes. There is no way. To answer this question properly would take a book, and not just a thin book, it would take a really big, thick book. And many very big, thick books have been written in attempt to answer this question. Because different Christian churches have very different answers to this question. I have a sense that some of you know that, which is why you ask the question. People have very different ideas of how things will go at the end of time. 
Now, I will say this. I do think all Christian churches pretty much agree on the basics. And the basics would be what we find in the Apostles' Creed, where it says, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Okay? Just about all churches, Orthodox churches anyway, believe that. That Jesus will come at the end of time, there will be a last judgment, wickedness will be put away forever, and the righteous will be gathered to him and we will live with him forever. Right? But every church believes that. And where they start to differ is what that will look like, how that will go. So, for example, a lot of churches have a very simple end-time view, and that is that history will just sort of go along as it is now, lots of trials and tribulations and things, and then all of a sudden, when we're not expecting him, Christ will come back, he'll restore everything, the judgment will come, and he'll make everything new. So I call it simple because it's sort of everything happens at once and in one big event, the return, the judgment, everything together. But then there's other people who add stuff. So for example, there's a lot of Christian churches, many of them, who say, oh no, when Christ comes back, the last judgment won't happen right away. There's a thousand year period where Jesus will go to Jerusalem and he'll reign in Jerusalem. And for that thousand years, that, uh, that'll, that'll happen, and then it's only after that that the last judgment takes place and he judges the living and the dead, okay? And that thousand-year thing is called the millennium. You're called the millennium sometimes. Well, some people also add to the millennium. They add the rapture and the tribulation, okay? Or maybe you've heard of the rapture. That's a belief that the end times will start when all of a sudden all the righteous will disappear from earth. So if the rapture happens somewhere in my sermon, um, I, I'm, well, I'm hoping you'll all be gone, okay? If, if, <laughs> if, if the rapture is true, we'll get to that later. But if, if the, the idea is that the righteous, all the righteous and, and godly will be taken up, and the only people left behind are the lukewarm and the ungodly, right? So that's why I hope, if, you know, if the rapture happens that you'll all be here. And then after the righteous are taken out of the earth, the belief is that for seven years, there'll be something called the Great Tribulation. And there'll be wars and conflict on the earth, and it'll be terrible. But then Christ will come back after seven years, okay, with the church, with the people who are raptured. And then he'll reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years, and then the last judgment, okay? And then there's way more variations than that. There's just so many variations. I've even begun to talk about different views of what will happen with the temple, I haven't begun to talk about different views of what God will do with the Jewish people. I haven't even mentioned the Antichrist, and people have all kinds of views about that. There's so many views, which is why you need a big book. Okay. The question I guess I have is, yeah, there's lots of different views, but do you know what our church teaches on these things? Do you, young people and you adults, do you know where our church stands on these many things? For instance, on the rapture, do we... And the Christian Reformed Church traditionally believe in the rapture? The answer is no. No, we have a different way of reading the Bible texts, okay? We don't believe in the rapture. Uh, do we in the Christian Reformed Church believe in that thousand year, the millennium, the thousand years that Jesus will reign in Jerusalem before the last judgment? No, we, we, don't, we don't believe in that either. What we believe is that, that first thing I said, the simple version, where Christ comes and the judgment and the restoring of all things all happens at once. Okay? That's our traditional belief. Now, I know there are people in, in this congregation who have different views, and that happens, and that's fine, but that's, that's where our church stands, okay? 
that's where our church stands. So we don't believe in the rapture. And maybe if you were listening in the Bible reading, you say, wait a minute. We don't believe in the rapture. What did you just read, Peter? Didn't you read those verses where there'd be two men in a field and one of them is taken away and one's left behind? Or two women grinding in a mill and one is taken and one is left behind? That's the rapture, isn't it? How can you say we don't believe the rapture when Matthew 24 so clearly teaches it? And indeed, people who believe in the rapture, this is one of the main texts that they point to to say, this is why we should believe in the rapture. Let me look, let's look at this a little more carefully just to show you how complicated this, this all is and how hard it is to talk about end time stuff, okay? When Jesus does this teaching, he says that at the end time, it'll be like the time of Noah. And he says, what, what happened in the time of Noah? Well, all the people were eating and drinking and they weren't suspecting anything. And without their suspecting it, the flood came and took them away. That's what it says. Flood came and took them away. Who are the them in that sense? Who's that referring to? The wicked, right? At the flood, the wicked were taken away, and Noah and his family, believing Noah and his family, were left behind. So the wicked were taken, the, the righteous were the ones left behind. Now, if Jesus is saying that at the end it's going to be like that, that's the opposite of the rapture, right? The rapture says that the good people will be taken away and the wicked will be left behind. But if it's like Noah, then, then, then we should anticipate that it's the wicked who are taken away to judgment and the righteous who are left behind for the new creation. I, I'm not here trying to pick a fight with our brothers and sisters, and they are our brothers and sisters who believe in the rapture. I, I, I went through that because I want to see how hard this is, right? That's not, when you first read the text, that's not the sense you get, but you have to look at it really closely. It is, end time Bible texts are some of the hardest Bible texts in all of scripture. They are really difficult. A lot of Jesus' teaching is, is actually pretty clear. You hear the story of the Good Samaritan, you know exactly what Jesus means, love your neighbor, right? You hear Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's really hard to do, but it's really clear what he means by that, right? But then in this sermon, these two chapters 24 and 25, you have, you have verses like this. This is verse 15, which I didn't read. Jesus says, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoke of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand... Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus, I love you. You know I love you, but this reader does not understand. Right? I mean, that's not... You know, there's ways to, to study that, and there are ways, that, and I'm not going to go into them now, but it's not easy. To, it's not clear on the first reading. I think we can all agree. That's how it is with a lot of end-time passages. Chapter 24 is hard. Revelation is hard. And that's why there's so many disagreements about what the church believes about the end time. So I guess that is the first thing I want to say in response to your question. How should I understand the end time? My first answer is very carefully, okay? Very carefully and with great humility. I mean, I, I laid out a case against the rapture when I just interpreted Matthew 24. I, I, want, I offer that case in humility. I mean, there's something profoundly mysterious about the end time. 
we always have to offer our interpretations with some degree of humility, acknowledging that we cannot know. And that's clearly what Jesus is trying to tell us in this passage. You cannot know. You do not know the day or the hour. Not only that, Jesus says, even I don't know the day or the hour. While he's on earth, Jesus himself does not, he can't, from his earthly perspective, see when the end time is coming. I assume he can see it now in heaven, but on earth he can't. And if Jesus couldn't see it on earth, how in heaven's name could we? This is also a consistent teaching that Jesus offers. Acts 1 verse 7, Jesus says to his disciples, it is not for you to know the day or the hour. Luke 21, the disciples come to him and said, Jesus, when are these things going to happen? And here's what Jesus says. He says, watch out, don't be deceived, for many will come in my name saying the time is near. Don't listen to them. That's what Jesus says. Jesus does not want us to get caught up in too much end time speculation. Okay, you might say, but then why does he talk about it? Why does he preach this sermon if he doesn't want us to get caught up in speculation? I mean, of course we're going to read and hear what you say, Jesus, and wonder about it. Why is Jesus telling us these things? Good question. I think there are two things we can say about that. He doesn't want us to get caught up in speculation, but there are two things he definitely wants us to do in this passage. And those two things are watch and work. Watch and work. First, he wants us to watch. Verse 42. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour when your Lord will come. While it is certainly possible to think too much about the end time and get too speculative about the end time, the opposite is also true. It is definitely possible to think too little about it. It is definitely possible to live your whole life without ever really expecting Jesus to come back at all. It's very easy to go about your life focusing on the stuff that's right in front of you and have no expectation that Jesus is coming back anytime soon. And that is definitely something Jesus is concerned about here. That Jesus does not want. He definitely wants us to be expectant. And he wants it so much that he, he emphasizes it with, not with one, but two, but three analogies, okay? First he says, you know, don't be like those people in the time of Noah just going around eating and drinking, didn't expect the flood. Don't be like the householder who didn't prepare for the thief coming because it's going to come like a thief in the night. And don't be like that wicked servant who just abused his fellow servants and didn't expect the master's return. It did not end well for that servant. Be ready. Keep watch, says Jesus. Super clear. And what does keeping watch look like? What does it mean to keep watch? Does it mean sort of walking around all day and looking up at the sky and sort of hoping to see Jesus coming? No. Um, I think keeping watch means looking at everything in life, the present as well as the future, looking at it more deeply, discerning the spirit beneath things, and knowing the true story of your life and the true story of the world. The true story of the world. That's a, that's a phrase I use all the time. What do I mean by that? Um, everybody lives by a story, right? Everybody steers their life as an idea of what's important in life and what's not important in life. 
everybody has a story that they steer their life by. And if you're a person who lives in this world, and all you look at are the things right in front of your face, the surface level things, if, it's, if all you look at for your story is Instagram, and the latest sitcoms, and the news headlines, and the advertisements that fly in front of your face all day, if that's all you see, what will the story of your life be? It'll be a story of money, and power, and pleasure. Because if that's all that's coming in, if that's all you're seeing, if that's all the data you're getting, what it'll look like to you is that the people who succeed in this world are the people with money, power, and pleasure. And, and so the story you'll tell yourself is, well, I, I, better get away. I better spend my life getting those three things and getting them for myself and getting them for my family so I can live well in this world because that's clearly what life is about. If all you have is TV and your social media feed, that's your default way of steering your life will be that path, money, power, and pleasure. That's exactly what Jesus does not want to have happen. That's literally what happens to the servant in that parable at the very end of our passage, right? The parable is, the, the servant is given the proper story to his life. And what's the story? Well, he's, he's supposed to take care of his master's things, and he's supposed to bless his fellow servants by giving them their food at the proper time. But then he stops expecting his master's return. And what happens? He changes the story of his life. He no longer expects his master's return. He changes the story of his life. And what does his story become? I'm going to use my master's stuff. I'm going to beat on my fellow servants. I'm going to eat and drink and hang out with the drunkards. Money, power, and pleasure. Changes the story. That's what Jesus is worried about. Do we see that in the modern church? Do we see that with people who have sort of stopped expecting Christ's return, stopped focusing on his story, you know, sort of gently sliding over into the story of money, power, and pleasure? Does that happen? Yeah, happens all the time. There's always a pressure on us to slide towards that story. Keep watch. Look beneath the surface of things. This world is about more than money, power, and pleasure. The Holy Spirit of God is moving in this world. This world belongs to God. He created it in love. The central thing that happened in this story is that Christ died and he rose. His spirit is moving in his church, and someday he will come back and make everything new. That's the true story of this world, and it's hopeful, it's full of love, it's full of sacrifice, it's full of goodness, and someday every eye on earth will see that that story is completely true. So that's one thing you do. If you're end times ready, you watch the other thing you do is work. And I think it's really easy to see what Jesus means by that in the whole sweep of the sermon in chapters 24 and 25 because Jesus finishes the sermon with four parables in a row, if you include the parable of the servant at the end of our passage. Four parables in a row. All of them are end-time parables, and all of them tell us the sorts of things we should be doing as we prepare for Christ to come. What are those things? On our passage... The answer is pretty clear. If the servant was doing it right, he would be watching out for his fellow servants and giving them their food at the proper time. So what does an end-time ready servant look like? Is someone who cares for their fellow church members, their fellow servants, watches out for them, shares their life and their resources with them, lifts them up. 
The second parable is that parable of the ten virgins that um, Rachel read just a little bit earlier. Who were the faithful? What were the faithful virgins doing? They were keeping oil in their lamp, keeping their lamp trimmed and burning, as the choir sang, right? What is that? I think that's keeping the practices of the faith. Faithful in prayer, faithful in scripture, faithful in worship, keeping the oil in the lamp so that the fire of your faith will, be, will, be, will still be there. That's, that's what faithful end time work looks like. A third parable is in your Bible called the parable of the bags of gold. Sometimes we call it the parable of the talents. Who's the faithful servant in that parable? Maybe you remember. It's the one who takes the talents that Jesus gives them, the master gives them, and uses them in the kingdom. Who takes risks, who invests themselves in the work of the kingdom, builds institutions, serves on boards, gives, works, builds the church, builds schools, who builds the work of the kingdom. That's what a faithful end time servant looks like in that parable. And finally, the last parable, I think you all know this one, the parable of the sheep and the goats. What does a faithful servant, end time servant look like in that parable? Someone who clothes the naked, feeds the hungry, welcomes the stranger, takes care of the lonely. That is faithful, end-time, expectant work. Watchful readiness is less about watching the skies and figuring out the signs and figuring out the means, and it's more about doing kingdom work. In the words of Frederick Bruner, who's one of the, the best scholars on Matthew, Jesus' sermon here in these chapters is not intended to create a apocalyptic seers, end-time-minded people who are just trying to figure out timelines. It intends to create spiritual and moral long-distance runners. Last Monday, I went to my very first deacons meeting here at LaGrave. I've been here 10 years. I've never been to a deacons meeting. It's because the elders and deacons always meet at the same time. So I'm always with the elders. Um, but this week I went with the deacons, and to reward me, they had their longest deacons meeting ever. <laughs> That's a true story. So, and it was all of us together. We were there, by the time, we, from the time we started council to the time we finished deacons was more than four hours, okay? And uh, these, our deacons are a little younger. They are busy people, okay? Many of them have families uh, that they're left at home, and those, even those who don't have families are extremely busy with their work. So really busy. What I saw them doing for that hour, they were so faithfully and carefully and prayerfully taking the, the money that you've given and trying to put it in a good place for the kingdom, giving it to the right institutions. There were, there were multiple people who, who needed help, and we wrestled long and hard. What's the best way to help these people? How can we bless them? How can we help them body and soul? And we spent all the time we needed to do this just right. You know what I saw in that room? A group of people who were keeping watch. A group of people who were absolutely ready for the end times. If the master came back and found us in the lower level meeting room going over our agenda, I am convinced that he would be pleased and would say, well done, good and faithful servants, because it was end time work, the work of the kingdom. And it was very good. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, um, for the assurance of your coming again to restore and make new everything that, that, that we work so hard to fix, but in the end, we can't quite fix it. Thank you for your coming judgment. Thank you for the certainty of your promises. Thank you for the certainty of your story, the central story of our life. Lord, I pray that you would make us good and faithful servants, that we'd be expectant of your presence every single day of our life and expectant of your justice at the end of time. In Christ's name we pray, amen.